and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I can't believe we'll be into October when you listen to this episode. This year has been achingly slow in some ways, but it's also flown past, which is quite weird when hardly anything has happened. It does feel like summer has come to an end this week in Britain. My mum has clipped our horse and I've been out running in the rain. Our guest today is Louise Saywell, who will fill us in on what it feels like to become the new national show jumping champion. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm still, you know, when I think about it, it's, you know, I get goosebumps because I'm just still so pleased with it. I'll also be joined by our news team to talk through the latest changes in the face of COVID-19, new anti-doping rules and showing, and the future of the UK show circuit. Finally, Alan Davies, supergroom to Carl Hester and Charles Dujardin, tells us what it's like to fly horses around the world. People have shown a lot of interest in what goes on behind the scenes with getting the horses to the championships and to the other side of the world. It's quite an amazing experience. So pull on your crash hat and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm thrilled to be joined this week by one of the country's leading show jumpers and the newly crowned British national champion, Louise Saywell. Louise, welcome and thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, great to be here. Thanks. Um, let's just start with talking about this new national show jumping title. Um, you were crowned with a brilliant win at Ballsworth in August. You've obviously had a bit of time for it all to sink in, or perhaps you're still pinching yourself about it. How does it feel and what does it mean to add a, a title like that? Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm still, you know, when I think about it, it's, you know, I get goosebumps because it's, I'm just still so pleased with it. Brilliant. Um, and tell us about the class itself, because it was full of the country's top riders, but um, it really suited your, you've got a lovely 12 year old gelding called PLS Halo Diamond. It really suited him, did it? Yeah, the jump off actually really suited him. Um, a bit more galloping rather than tight turnbacks because he's so careful. Um, you can have a really big canter and he stays, you know, there's no worries that he's, you know, going to have a jump down. And what about the realisation that you'd won? What did it feel like? And uh, were you jumping around or were you quite, quite calm about it all? I must say I was down in the collecting ring, obviously not wanting to wish bad on anybody, but obviously hoping <laughs> that I was going to win. Um, yeah, I was ecstatic. You know, it was, it was a bit of a shock because we'd, I'd only just got him back and that was my first show back on him because he'd been with his owner, Mike Alvin, through lockdown. Um, so that was my first show back on him. So it was a bit of a shock that, you know, that he did win, but he jumped fantastic and full credit to Mike and Flora Young who rides him at home. So he sort of came to you with a good attitude and fit and rearing to go by the sounds of it. Yeah, he did. You know, they'd done a great job keeping him fit and ticking over. Brilliant. Um, and just as proof that horses are always the best levellers, you went from that high and then just a few days later, I understand you broke your hand. How did that happen? Yeah, on the Wednesday, I'd got on a five-year-old and, you know, I'd ridden him Monday and Tuesday and he was fine and he just came and had a bit, he had a little spook, spun around. I didn't fall off, but my hand somehow went over his neck and, oh. yeah, it broke the bone in my hand. So that was, that was the end of me for a few weeks. <laughs> that is just typical, isn't it? But I hear you're back at, um, back competing again this week. You were at Western Lawns, I think. Yeah, I've nicked my partner, Graham Lovegrove's older safe horse as safe <laughs> as they can be anyway um so yeah i thought i'd ease myself back into it um and he did a great job he won a 140 he was sixth in the grand prix and he was second in another 140. fantastic you feel all right you're uh, back to full fitness then does it feel okay 
it's a little bit sore, but you know, it feels it feels okay, and I think it's gonna be because it's not been doing anything um, for four weeks. So, yeah. but I'm back on I've up to four now that I'm riding. So, gosh, it's yeah, uh, yeah these riders, yeah, you all bounce back very quickly. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the longest I've had off from not riding. <laughs> And just going back to how it all started for you, the Saywell family isn't quite on the scale of the Whitaker dynasty, but both your parents were successful riders and you have various relatives in the sport. Tell us about your childhood growing up on ponies. Yeah, so I rode from when I can remember, really. Um, I had a little basket saddle, there's loads of pictures of me. <laughs> so I've always ridden. You know, I was, I was quite successful on the ponies, I would say. And then I'm obviously moved on to the horses. Amazing. Yes. Actually, tell us about your pony days, because a lot of people will remember your lovely little coloured pony, CJ's Kimosabi. Um, and you, I mean, he just seemed to win everything. Both of you were in, you know, in a different league in those days. Tell us about all your championships and the fun you had with him and, and various other ponies. Yeah, he was, you know, he was a fantastic pony. You know, he'd even, he was a bit of a legend. Mm -hmm. He won Pony European Championships in Rome. I think we got a team silver medal as well I won the 148 championship at Hoy's you know you name it he won it you know with him being a cob he shouldn't have done the things he did but he just <laughs> loved his job and we've got a great um, interview going in the magazine this week and you actually said there was a picture of him from his former days he was sort of full of he had feather and you know he was a proper cob wasn't he yeah I mean after he won the Europeans, a girl that owned him originally, I think she was around Norton Heath area, and she sent me some photos of him when she had him, and it, it's quite remarkable. Um, and you say about that transition to horses, it's always quite a difficult one. How did you find it? Did you make an easy transition? It was quite an easy transition. Obviously, it's difficult to find, you know, find the horses, um, because even at junior junior European level, you know, they've got to be Grand Prix horses. You know, I got my first probably horse off Andrew Saywell, so my dad's son, called Cyprianus, and I took him to the Junior Europeans, but then he was sold. One of the hazards of the job, isn't it? So, yeah. And then you went abroad for a couple of, well, ended up a couple of years, didn't you? Tell us about um, training in the Netherlands and uh, sort of the importance of a stint like that for young riders, really. Yeah, so basically why I went is I was a little bit in between. That horse had been sold. I didn't quite have the horses where I felt, you know, I wanted to be. So I thought it was a good time to go away and, you know, see the world, see it in a different sort of light. Um, so I decided I went to Holland to Vincent Vaughan to train with him. Um, and I took two of my horses with me. Um, and then in the end, I ended up getting a job there and I stayed for two years. Brilliant. And what did you learn while you were there, would you say? Every, you know everything not just about the riding it was about the managing of them you know the shows and it was just everything you learn about the whole package and I would it's something I say now I would definitely recommend that any young rider that wants to further on their career in horses and are serious about it that they need to they need to go away from home for a period of time that's very good advice it seems to work you know all the top riders have done that haven't they it's a, a good rite of passage you're now back back home and a very successful international national rider tell us about your setup you're based in nottinghamshire with your partner graham lovegrove tell us about your setup there and the team you've got working behind the scenes yeah, so it's at my parents' place. Um, they're still very much involved. 
we've got roughly about 20 stables we're pretty much always full um <laughs> or over full <laughs> but <Yeah>. anyway <laughs> i think that's always the case um we've got a great team of staff that we you know we work with um which i think is really important it makes our job a lot easier um and you've shared on instagram a fantastic picture of all your bridles tell us about your tack room is it just a hoarding place full of gadgets what's uh, what's going on in your tack room <laughs> Yeah, I have, you know, I'm a bit of a shopaholic and I love, <laughs> I love to buy new things. So I think we currently have about three bridles per horse going on at the moment. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And is, have you sort of got secret weapons as well? Have you got gadgets and things or are you sort of more about back to basics with the tack and things? Um, I think obviously everybody has their go-tos that they like, um, but you try and keep it as, you know, as simple as you can, but obviously mm -hmm. As you know, horses aren't always that simple. Um, yeah. So different bits and things like that. And you know, when new things come out, it's always good to have have them in your tack room. You never know when you might need it. Definitely. Um, and tell us about your current string of horses. You've you've got some good top ones and perhaps some younger ones that we should be looking out for. Yeah, I mean, my best mare. She's been away. She's actually through lockdown. She was doing embryos, and she's called Jalila. Um, mm -hmm. She's a twelve-year-old mare by Chaco Blue and she's owned by Old Lodge Prince Torquay. So yeah, we uh, currently at the minute, we're just building her back up and I am hoping to go to Olivia Nova in a couple of weeks, basically just to get her going and back up to speed. Fantastic. And what about some younger ones coming through? Yeah, we have some really nice five and six year olds. A five year old, he's called King Blue and he's owned by Zara Lammyman. Um, he's fairly new to our team. We've probably had him three or four months, maybe a bit longer. Um, but he shows great potential. And we've got a six-year-old stallion, Forest Ranger, again owned by Old Lodge. Um, he was bought out of Brightwells, actually, as a three-year-old. Brilliant. Oh, so these sound very exciting. Do you have a sort of type of horse that you look for or any particular qualities you like or bad points that you can overlook when you're trying horses? Um, I think like nowadays you've got to, you know, they've, you know, they have got to be sharp and quick moving because, you know, you see these jump offs at the big level and they're just so fast. You know, the horse has got to be competitive. And, and talking of which, is there a particular type of class that you're, you particularly enjoy jumping in? I've seen you done a few puissances recently as well as what's your sort of speciality, would you say? Puissance is not my favourite thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not my favourite class. The, I've jumped two horses in them, Dazzler and the one, it was its first time at Bowlesworth, Edgar Rento. Mm -hmm. um, so I was quite surprised when it won. Um, and the wall stood at, I think, two metres, I can't remember, like 10 or 12. It was, yeah, it was a big one, wasn't it? Anyway. Yeah, and the horse is only like 15 too. Um, oh so it did goodness. look very big. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, and were any particular shows and venues that you really enjoy going to that you always have in your calendar? I love Horse of the Year show. Oh. That is my favourite show to go to. And I think a lot of people just love, you know, it's the atmosphere and it's Hoys, isn't it? That's what you dreamed of when you were younger, is to go there and th in the spotlight. And you've had a great record there. I mean, even from your pony days, you competed in showing, didn't you, there from the start? Yeah, I did really well um, with the showing as well. And one year, I remember I won a showing class and then the 148s with CJ. That's brilliant. Um, and I bet it, it never, you never tire of going through that curtain. And, and yet, as you say, about feeling that spotlight on you. It's... There's no better feeling. <laughs>
And yes, again, in this interview, you mentioned that you, you've, has it been seven years since you last had a holiday? You definitely seem like a workaholic. Tell us, is there a way that you unwind? What do you like to do? Have you ever have time to sit down and watch a box set or anything? Are you, uh, or are you always on the go with the horses? It's pretty much always on the go. If I get, a, you know, an hour or spare afternoon, I am a shopaholic. <laughs> that is what I love, you know, I enjoy most. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure then? What are you uh, spending your money on at the moment? It's either tack or clothes myself. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, just to round things off then, I imagine like everyone else, uh, 2020 has been a bit of a slightly different year than you imagined. Um, you're heading off to Spain. What are your other plans for the rest of the year? Well, if I go to Spain, I'm actually going to do Met 1 and Met 2. Um, so I won't be back till I think it's middle of November anyway. Um, so then we'll try and there'll be another couple of probably two stars at Pilburg and in Holland um, and just trying to keep going as much as we can. Um, and then maybe if we get some normality next year, we will be, you know, they'll be ready to go. Uh, and what is it you love most about the sport? What gives you the biggest buzz about it all? When you win. <laughs> Everybody likes to win. <laughs> and just to find a look back, what's been your proudest moment from your career so far? Uh, there have been you know, different um, moments when you win at Hoys um, and the, you know, especially the European Championships. You know, it's a major achievement on any level that you win them at. And then another moment was a home-produced horse called Winner. You know, we had her from six and I took her right through to the Super League final at Barcelona, which I think is a great achievement when you take a home-produced horse all the way to the top level. Fantastic. Um, and any aims and ambitions still to fulfil? Is Olympics the dream or what, what are your big goals? I think that's everybody's dream, isn't it? The Olympics. <laughs> Um, well, fingers crossed. I hope it all goes well. Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you once again for coming on the show and we look forward to seeing you out and about very soon, I hope. Thank you very much. Today for our News Roundup, I'm joined by Horse and Hounds News Editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our Senior News Writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hi. And also our News Writer, Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. Hi, Pippa. It's nice to have the full the full trio of news with me today. And I'm going to kick off our little chat because it's been a very exciting week for me. I went cross-country schooling on Saturday for the first time since March. And fingers crossed, I'm going to get my eventing season off the ground with Run at Dauncey on Sunday. <laughs> I, feel a bit, I feel a bit silly saying that. I've never started a season in October before, but I guess that's kind of the nature of, of, of a coronavirus year. <laughs> what has everyone else been up to? Well, sadly, realising that I'm going to need to clip very soon. Um, was riding in the rain and the freezing January weather all weekend and thinking I'm going to have to go and buy clipper oil and really should have got my rugs washed and reproofed sooner than this. <laughs> oh, it really does feel like winter has come this week. Becky, what's it like with you in Scotland? Are your Shetlands going to need clipping soon? <laughs> Everyone is getting very hairy and definitely noticing a drop in temperature here. So um, dreaded winter is coming. Yeah, definitely. What about you, Lucy? Yes, much the same, to be honest. I Every year, every single year, I think, this year, I'm going to send off my clipper blades for sharpening after I've done the last clip. And I'm getting towards having to do my first clip of the season. And I can tell you that, I mean, why break the habit of 30 years? I, I haven't. They're, they are absolutely still exactly where I left them at the end of last season. So that is my job for this week. 
Oh, I'm so lucky that my mum takes charge of the clipping of the sports pony and she I did offer to help I offered to you know help Mark where we wanted the lines to be and everything to do it when I was there by the time I got home the next time she'd done it so I was absolutely oh, celebrating the dream <laughs> yeah I don't really do is. lines because I know how wobbly they will be I just take the lot off <laughs> <laughs> we kind of expect him to live in a field all year round so it seems a little harsh to strip him completely <laughs> Right, on to the serious stuff. Lucy, when we recorded last Tuesday, we were waiting to hear what the new national measures would be um, with COVID-19 cases rising. And we're a week on now. How are things looking for horse sport with the new restrictions? So, I mean, touching wood, so far, I don't think a huge amount is going to change. Uh, British questions confirmed to that that to us this week. Uh, their return to sport policy sort of covers this uh, within it. And unless there's extra, you know, extra lockdowns, which specifically reference sport and stopping that, then I don't think a huge amount is going to change other than there's going to have to be some of the some of the things that go go around, you know, with show venues and things, you know, wearing masks inside and things like that. That is they're going to very much have to comply with that. But on the whole, I think, touch wood, we are we're going to be all right. Good. That's really good news. But the bad news is it looks like the return of crowds to race courses and showgrounds of other sorts could be quite a long way off now. It does. And this has been a real blow. And I really don't think that the whole industry can underestimate. Or I don't think they are underestimating it, but I really think this is very, very serious. It's not you know, it's not just about racing. Racecourses have to survive as businesses. And there are so many rural economies and businesses and ancillary businesses that are based around having crowds at sporting events. And it is very, very, they are really feeling that impact. Um, British Horse Racing Authority has called on the government for more support. Uh, as what it's saying, it's facing a severe threat. People's jobs are at serious risks, as is the businesses they work in. And they are citing the loss, revenue loss faced by UK racecourses of between 250 and 300 million this year, which, as we know, then has that knock on effect to participants, owners, and that whole trickle down effect all the way through, all the way through the economies that are directly and indirectly connected with racing and horse sport. Mm, that's a really, a really serious threat. Do any of the new measures announced by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak around, around jobs in the economy, do they help us at all in equestrianism? So I think so. Um, perhaps some more than others. So I've been this. That's what I've been trying to establish quite a lot this week is how uh, how the new measures that Rishi Sunak announced on 24th of September, how they could provide help and in what way. And I spoke to Talis Matson, who's the president of the Equestrian Employers Association. And I also spoke to Claire Williams of the British Equestrian Trade Association. And there there is help there. And those organizations can help if businesses are looking at how that help might apply to them and how to apply for it. The Equestrian Employers Association certainly uh, are a good place to go to advice for that. And what Talis Matson really said, it, this is really stressed, is it's how important it is for equestrian businesses to make sure they really are complying with employment law. It might seem boring, it might seem as something that's not not for them. and But in order to access the support that has really been apparent this year is how important it is that you are you are complying with the law and the legislation in order to access the support that's that's out there which again it's not just for the businesses it that then helps their employees that then helps wider industry and it has that sort of 
circle knock-on effect of of why it's so important and yeah as I said before it's not going to help everyone it's not going to help every situation but there is there is a package of measures there really that should hopefully apply to to some equestrian businesses. Mm, it's good to hear that in, in what are going to continue to be really tough times across the industry. And finally, in terms of international horse sport, the FEI has released some new rules this week too. What are they all about? Yes, yeah, so they have. So this covers things I think as we've all been finding that you think of you think of rules and regulations and how you live your life and then there's it throws up this strange situation we're all in the pandemic it throws up a whole load a whole load of others so they've clarified in sort of the last couple of weeks uh, how you know safe prize givings safe media and uh, veterinary procedures as well that you know when you vets might have to come into contact with horses and their owners at events and measuring ponies and things like that so it really is just about keeping everyone safe and um not having too many people on podiums at the same time having one-way systems and even right down to their asking the media i know i do this myself and quite a lot of other people do uh, use your phone to record interviews at times when i don't know it's raining your hands are cold or you can't can't write as fast as people are talking and so they're asking people to disinfect their phones before and after that so it's all sorts of things in there that that are just there to help keep horse sport running keep everyone safe Mm, I think we're all going to have to run around with a little packet of wet wipes wiping down our phones in between (laughs) interviews but I think I'm going to stick to the notebook wherever I can to be honest and hopefully no one's going to ask me to disinfect that Thank you, Lucy. That's all interesting to hear. And we also heard this week that the only five star of the year, Poe in France, is planning to welcome a small crowd to its event later this month. They'll all be wearing masks and I think we'll be seeing the entries for that event soon, hopefully this week, which will be really exciting. As I say, it's the only five star of the year that's going ahead. So there is some sport happening, although things are difficult in the industry. Becky, I'm coming over to you next. You've been working on a story about the future of the UK show circuit. More generally, not really about COVID-19. But who have you been speaking to and, and what have they been saying about this? This week, I've been chatting to Kelsall Hill in Cheshire and Wellington Riding in Hampshire, and both of which have been investing a lot of time and money into their centres. Kelsall Hill tell me they're about to open a new state-of-the-art indoor complex, which sounds really quite exciting. And Wellington had been due to hold their first international show jumping competition this year before the pandemic struck. I think both these centres certainly sound like they have a lot to offer the British show circuit. Mm, that's interesting. And one thing that really struck me in the story was that both venues said they wanted input from riders to find out what competitors want from show centres. Was that a theme that stood out for you as well? Absolutely. What was really clear speaking to both centres is that they're very keen to listen. They want to hear what show, what riders want. Uh, they want to know how they can improve their facilities and create that atmosphere for shows. And they acknowledge there's a lot on offer at centres abroad, um, but they really want to create that environment here for riders. An interesting suggestion was holding a round table type discussion with riders from across the disciplines getting the governing bodies on board and other venues to see how we could really work together and create that good circuit here for people. Interesting. And one of the spurs for this story has been a rush of opinions from horse and hound columnists on on the topic of show centres and venues. Nick Skelton, Carl Hester, Laura Tomlinson have all weighed in through, through the medium of horse and hound. And you actually went back to Nick, didn't you, Becky? Because he was sort of the one who started this conversation with a column back in May. What did Nick say to you this week? 
Well, Nick said he got some quite negative feedback at the time um, for his column where he'd suggested that we don't have those five-star facilities here and even suggested Showjumping needs a shake-up in terms of membership fees and classes. But what Nick did suggest um, when I was chatting to him is that if we were to put, say, British Showjumping membership up, that money could then be used to provide grants for venues here to make improvements, which I thought was quite an interesting suggestion. And he also touched on the need for more rider input into the sport, which really ties in with, you know, what these venues are looking for too, from um, that input. So I think there's a real desire across the board to see British venues develop and succeed. Mm, that's interesting. You're right that Nick's column did cause a bit of a Ferrari. We had a uh, we have a bit of a, a horse and hand staff WhatsApp group that covers quite a few of us, and we were screen grabbing some of the comments we'd seen on Facebook and sending it round. I remember the week that Nick's column came out. So we like it when our columnists cause a reaction, even if it's not always positive. And 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 it's led to you know some other opinions and, and interesting things coming out in columns and news stories. So thank you for following up on that one, Becky. Eleanor, finally, we're coming to you to talk about a new anti-doping code in showing, something that's been set up by the British Show Horse Association. What's led to this coming about? Yeah, so this was basically in, in response to members' requests. This is what members asked for. Um, there was a case we reported on nearly a year ago about the first positive bromide test uh, for a producer. And BHSA members were not happy with the sanctions he got and they asked the association to put some work into creating this new policy. And Eleanor, you mentioned suspensions earlier. A different sort of policy around suspensions is part of this new ruling as well, isn't it? Yeah, so in almost all cases where people do fall foul of the code, the sanctions are going to involve suspension. Um, and one of the things about the case, the positive bromide case that I referred to before was that that three month ban was served mainly out of season. And so members were feeling there was no deterrent, whereas now they're saying in almost all cases it will be a suspension and two thirds of that will have to be during the active season. Yeah, for sure, because there's not much point in having a suspension which runs during the off season. So there's nothing to be suspended from. Thank you, Eleanor, for filling us in on that story. And to Lucy and Becky for joining us too, to fill us in on the important stories they've been looking at this week. So it's over to Supergroom Alan Davies now to hear all about flying horses. So this episode has been suggested that I talk about flying horses. People have shown a lot of interest in what goes on behind the scenes with getting the horses to the championships and to the other side of the world, which I think is amazing that people really appreciate um, what the grooms do and what they go through to get the horses to the championships. I've been doing it for many, many years now, longer than I care to mention, probably about 30 years I've been flying horses. My first flight was out to New York um, with some show jumpers. And in, in those times we used to load them up a ramp into the plane and then build the crates around them. Um, it's changed a lot since then. And it's amazing, I think, how the horses cope really with it, the things we ask them to do. Um, and it was always the one thing that um, I love about Vallegro. He trusted me implicitly to take him around the world. Someone worked out that we'd travel 75,000 kilometres together and he competed in 10 different countries. And, you know, I had to take him on different trucks and boats and trains and planes. And he trusted me every time. He followed me into the crates when we loaded at the airport and, and never questioned that we were going to be all right, bless his heart. And now we've got the next generation coming on. 
We can only take nine grooms on the plane. There's only nine seats behind the cockpit. They insist now that everyone has to be seated for takeoff and landing and with a seat belt on. I mean, years ago, we used to have any number of people on the plane. We used to just sit anywhere on the plane. We used to sit with the horses and I remember sleeping underneath the Whitney blanket, underneath my show jumpers many a time, flying backwards across to America. But these days it's, it's very different and we have to uh, carry oxygen masks with us the whole time in case of emergency. And the whole procedure starts um, from home, really. I leave here usually the day before. Um, the last few times we've flown light to try on in 2018, we flew from Liège Airport. It's, it's very well set up now, Liège. Um, it's a smaller airport than um, Amsterdam, so I used to fly from Amsterdam, but we tend to fly from Liège now because I have to fly with all the other European horses and there's not many horse flights from England. So I drive from here, I get the train out um, and it takes me about eight hours to get to Liège Airport. They've got a really nice stabling. So I usually go the night before and then I can walk the horses when I get there. And then they bring crates, we call them crates. They basically look like a two horse trailer and they get brought to the loading bay, which has got shuttered doors. So you've got a, a massive room basically, which is all padded and matted. So it's really safe for the horses. There's a, a loading order and in Tryon, I was in charge of five horses. I had the whole of the British team and um, Caroline Chu's Singapore horse um, there because they were a small country and had an individual there, groom wasn't allowed to go, but I know Rachel who works for Caroline. So I had a long list of do's and don'ts and I was trusted to take care of him. And I had Carl and Charlotte's horses, Emile's horse and um, Spencer Walton's horse. So. I had three that hadn't flown before and two that had flown before. So I met them all at the airport. I took my two out and Supernova Spencer's horse. And then there's a, a big schedule done and they plan who's in which crate together. The guys from the shipping agency go around and ask the grooms which horses we're best with which ones. It's quite tight on the plane um, once they're on there. They get put into the crates from the loading bay and then the ramps get put up and then they link three together and then they get towed by a tractor out to the tarmac and then they get pushed onto a hydraulic lift and then the hydraulic lift lifts them up the side of the plane and then they get pushed along some runners into the plane so it's it's quite a feat the whole loading thing takes quite a while because i usually fly with all the other european horses like flying out to china all the dressage horses flew on one flight so we had 36 so we had the german horses the french horses the dutch horses the british horses the spanish horses all the all the teams were on the one flight so it's quite a lengthy procedure it you know, it can take four to five hours, especially if we get a non-loader, one that says, no, actually, I don't want to go in the crate, thank you very much. Um, and then it takes everyone's skill to then get them in and try not to hold up the process. And it can be quite noisy too. Um, sometimes I plug their ears, sometimes they'll have ear covers on because the rattling of the crate and then trolling them out across the tarmac can be a bit noisy. Other planes coming in and um, you're literally right on the tarmac. And if they have to queue, to get onto the plane if the, the literally the crates just get left on the tarmac waiting to go on if you get get one that's tricky or if some or if the machinery breaks down or something so um going to china's like 
it was funny because I was more worried about Delicato the whole time. And in actual fact, he put himself into the crate and he put his head in the corner. I hung him up a hanger and he was like, I'm fine, Dad. Absolutely fine. Don't worry about me. I'm just going to stand here in the corner and I don't want to know anything about what's going on. Whereas, of course, Freestyle is the busiest, nosiest madam you've ever met. She's a right curtain twitcher. So she was looking out of the door, trying to look out the window. And there's a, there's a sort of a tarpaulin at the front, which you can put down or you can lift up to get them some more air. So I usually put that down while we're loading. Well, she was pushing that with her nose, trying to see what. So of course then she got a right shock. She suddenly looked out and then she saw planes and things going on and then they lift them on the hydraulics. And sometimes that can be a bit noisy, a bit jolly. Well, she was shaking. She was like, her eyes were on stalks. Luckily I'd got, I usually take carrots with me because there's not much space in the crate. You have, you're limited as what you, can take all the other equipment has to go in trunks and go in the hold underneath so you can literally take a spare hog head collar spare ropes and a little bit of feed and canister of water and i usually take loads of apples and carrots to keep them occupied on the flight so i just kept feeding her carrots to get her mind off what was going on around um luckily supernova and don dimaggio they were fine didn't bat an eyelid they were so busy eating they were they're two quite hungry boys so they just ate and um, and they were fine. <laughs> Free freestyle was just getting herself again. Her right knickers in a knot. But um, once they're on the plane, it actually is quite calm and quiet. Once they've got everybody on, the crates are all on, and the doors are all shut. All the paperwork's done. The officials have lifted the doors and sealed us in. They're good to go. Then the horses are amazing. They usually settle down really well, and it's really quiet on there. They usually air con it. And then once we're taken off, then we can take our seatbelts off and then we can go back and check the horses. And it's amazing. I've never had a bad one um, taking off or landing. They're such amazing creatures, the things we put them through. And, um, and people often ask me, oh, you know, how do they cope? And it, it's, it's great. They cope really well. It's, it's peaceful up there. Once they're, we're up in the air and they're flying and the air con's on, it's really peaceful in there. But we all kind of work as a team. And um, if one person run out of hay or run out of water, you know, we'll um, give them some of ours and we all just, you know, if everyone's asleep or if like I've gone down the plane to check my horses and there's one of the German ones needs something and I've got to deal with it. And there's, it's real camaraderie on there and the, the grooms all work together and the vets and the riders and everything. So um, it's quite an amazing experience really. The, they're such amazing creatures. I have such admiration for them. Bluebee used to love it as well, the leg row. He, he loved flying because it was just him and me off on an adventure. And um, he used to get to eat lots, which was, which was not great for him because he was on a diet most of the time. But when he was traveling, I used to make a few exceptions and let him have a few extra treats, which he just loved. And he soon cottoned on that flying was the moment that he got extra treats so he loved that especially when we went to Rio because it was quite it was like an 11 and a half hour flight <laughs> so he was like boom this is good daddy's here there's a bag of carrots this is great this is life so I hope we'll be doing some more flying soon um who knows about Tokyo but um I would dearly love to be able to fly Freestyle and Delicato out to Tokyo next year let's hope and pray that happens I'll let you know if it does, and um, I will be able to tell you some more stories then, hopefully. 
Thank you, Alan. Next week, we'll have a new guest on our advice segment, Vet Helen Van Tool of VT Vets, who will be delving into some of the issues that can crop up with hunters during the season. Our guest will be the Chinese Olympic event rider, Alex Hirtian. And of course, I'll be joined by my horse and hound colleagues to talk about all the latest news. Thank you for listening. And please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.